I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So in our Bible readings this week, we're continuing our our chapter-by-chapter uh, chapter walk through the Pauline epistles, so we're well into 1 Corinthians. Um, and like I said, it is, in some ways, Paul is just addressing a laundry list of concerns he's received from the Corinthian church. Um, this week will be is especially fun. You get, we get 1 Corinthians 10, <clears throat> excuse me, 10 and 11, which have Paul's very clear teaching uh, concerning the sacrament of the altar and the Lord's Supper. So that's... Uh, so that's coming this week. And I, I really think that 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 is kind of the, the theme of the book, right? Everything kind of leads up to, first, especially chapter 11. Everything really flows, leads up to chapter 11 and it kind of, and then afterwards everything kind of follows from chapter 11, right? So, so chapter 11, the re, the, Paul kind of ends up saying, the reason all these things are a problem is because it means that you're having the Lord's Supper wrongly. So divisions, um, being intermingled with the altars of idols, um, um, sexual immorality, all these things that are running rampant in the Corinthian church um, are leading to you celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that's actually not for your benefit, but for your judgment. So that some of you are actually getting sick and dying, right? The getting sick and dying is a result of, of receiving the Lord's Supper wrongly. And then following that, Paul offers, I think, what is the corrective. All right, so if you don't want to receive the Lord's Supper in this wrong way, here then, chapters 12 through 16, here is the corrective. Here is what you should be doing uh, in order to receive the Lord's Supper together rightly. Um, so, so that's coming up this week. Uh, flip to the inside, the inside of your sheet there. Um, our memory verse for this week is from 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll say it all together. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And that's, and that's part of the, the corrective, right? Um, you have all been baptized into one body, therefore you aren't divided because there's, this isn't from 1 Corinthians, but to borrow from Ephesians, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all. Therefore, if you've all been baptized thusly, you are all one, and if you are all in one body, then you can't have these factions. You can't do it. Stop. All right, so that's, so that's uh, up through the memory work there. All right, uh, we're not going to read all of this. Uh, you should, over the course of the week, you should take the time and read from the table of duties 
uh, what is expected of citizens according to the scriptures as, um, as, uh, as Luther uh, gives it in the table of, as Luther uh, organizes it in the table of duties. Um, we, are, uh, we did Romans 13 last week. Uh, let's read that, thir that third, the third and fourth uh, paragraphs there from 1 Timothy and Titus, starting there with I urge. So let's, let's read that out loud altogether. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. All right. And since we we're singing it, this is this is a very um, very handy. The hymn we've been going through in the uh, in the prayer devotional the last few weeks also is uh, is one of the communion hymns during during church today. So if uh, if you're at 8:30 church, uh, you've already had some practice, so you can help sing it now. And if you're if you're going to uh, 11 o'clock church, well, let's go ahead and sing that here and. Uh, you can have a little uh, wet your whistle for, for one of the hymns at church. Uh, let's, sing, let's sing that hymn there. But Christ the second Adam came To bear our sin, our woe and shame To be our life, our light, our way Our only hope, our only the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty, eternal God, in the word of your apostles and prophets, you have proclaimed to us your saving will. Grant us faith to believe your promises, that we may receive eternal salvation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, so go ahead and take this, fold it up, put it in your pocket. Uh, use especially that, especially that congregational prayer list uh, so, that we are, so that we're remembering our brothers and sisters in Christ um, in their various needs as we, as we pray for each other throughout the week. Uh, announcements, uh, we don't have much today. Uh, just remember to clean up. I've got in all caps the word all, all the tables, chairs, Podium and whiteboard, please. So I'll do my best to remember to put my podium and whiteboard away. All right. I think that's all that needs to be announced. Oh, here's something. It's not on the sheet. Here's something, right? So um, I don't like teaching class without coffee. And the rest of you probably don't really enjoy a, uh, attending class without coffee. Um, but coffee doesn't make itself, all right? Um, we actually need people to make the coffee. Uh, this week, uh, we, were in a, we were in a tight spot. We almost had no one to come in and make the coffee, and then the Bowmans uh, volunteered at the last minute. So thank them for the coffee this morning. But also, um, please, if you are able, uh, contact... Uh, are the Brouches kind of in charge of organizing that? Um, okay. All right, so, yeah, so uh, Keith knows what he's doing. I've, I know, there's any number of folks who know what they're doing. Um, the Brouches, I think, are maybe kind of in charge of trying to organize this. So please, if you're able to come in and, and, and make coffee and set up tables and chairs, please uh, contact 
uh, Dave Brouch or Gretchen Brouch and, and, and get, uh, and get uh, involved that way. Um, because Bible study without coffee is just not as enjoyable as Bible study with coffee. And it's not really that hard, trust me. I've, uh, I, I, even I can do it. So, um, all right, I think that's all of our announcements. All right, so we're studying the liturgy. One of these days I'm gonna remember to, so we don't have hymnals in our, in our Bible rack over there and that's fine. I, I kind of wish we did though. Um, maybe, maybe starting next week I'll try to remember to print off just like from, from the computer, uh, a handout consisting of the, with the parts of the liturgy uh, that I'm at least hoping, <laughs> hoping to get through that uh, on that given day. So last week we finished up the preparatory service or the confession and absolution, um, which, which we've noted has, uh, is not really, was not always part of the, of the liturgy. Um, it is kind of a reformation era innovation. Um, we noted that it's kind of jumped around places in the divine service, sometime uh, originally kind of being uh, after the sermon, but before the sacrament of the altar. Um, here in America, in our, in our usage, um, it, 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 it finds a home at the beginning of the service. Um, uh, but, we re but we noted, right, that it's, it's you, you can say it's not really properly part of the service, which is why uh, I think in TLH it's called the preparatory service. Now we've, you know, in our hymnals it's just simply labeled confession and absolution. Uh, but that means this week we're getting into the service, properly speaking, which starts with the intro. But before we do that, a number of weeks ago when I started teaching the class, we started with a lot of definitions. It's probably kind of boring. Uh, the boring is helpful, so, uh, so we, we suffered the boring. Uh, so we talked about distinctions between things like rite and ceremony, between ordinary and proper. Uh, so we have one more distinction today that I think is going to be uh, really helpful for us. So after the service of confession and absolution, in big red words at the top of the hymn, I think they're in black in our bulletins, but that's okay. Um, you see the, you'll see the words, service of the word. And then later on in the service, there's another big all caps red word section and it says service of the of the sacrament, all right? So this is kind of the, the next distinction, the next definition uh, we want to bring up. Service of the word and the service of the sacrament. Um, and these are, so these are kind of the two, uh, the, the way the, the liturgy is, is really organized. So you can kind of, think, if you think of it kind of as a path, uh, you can almost think of it as a path with two humps, and then you're on your way. Um, and because each service, so the first one, this is service of the word, service of the sacrament, and each of them have a high point, all right? Uh, a point of, of most importance, you might say. So in the service of the word, so you don't want to take a, take a gander at what the high point is of the, in the service of the word. The, the reading of the Holy Gospel. Correct. All right? Thank you for not saying the sermon. <laughs> um, <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> All right, so we have the high point gospel. Now, service of the sacrament, high point. 
Supper, and I think specifically uh, the words of institution. Um, so, or I, just because I, it takes longer to write words of institution, I'm going to write consecration. Uh, by that, you know I mean words of institution. And these are the two high points. And what's really interesting about this, uh, originally both, uh, even in Luther's time, both the gospel and the words of institution would have been chanted. They chanted the readings. All right? Uh, and so when Luther puts together his order of the divine service, do you want Harvey maybe knows? Um, uh, does anyone know how Luther displays a thematic link between the gospel and the consecration as the most important parts of, of the two parts of the service? He actually has them chanted to the same tone. He uses the same chant tone. So if, in Luther, right, um, which is, if we were chanting the gospel, you might, you might pick up on it, right? So, so you hear, the, you, we chant the words of institution on average uh, two-thirds of the time. Um, let the reader understand. Um, or the hearer understand, I guess. Um, and, and, the, and the chant tone we use is the one in the hymnal, but it's, it's um, tone five, if that means anything to you. Um, and it's, Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Well, you can put that tone to any text you want. You just got to... So, um, so you could put it to the gospel reading. Um, and he told them a parable to this effect, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Right? That is a specific tone. And for, if you were chanting the gospel according to the way Luther had it laid out, you would chant the gospel with the same tone uh, that you would chant uh, the consecration, the words of institution. Because uh, Luther wants those things to be linked. That's, Luther doesn't do much by accident. He has some weird ideas, but he doesn't do anything by accident. Uh, all right? So these are, the, these are the high points of the service of the word and the service of the sacrament. Now, something that Harvey mentioned last week that I told him we'd get to that we didn't, uh, but we're going to get to this week, is service of the word and service of the sacrament in history have gone by a slightly different name. Service of the word was known as service of the catechumens. The service of the sacrament was the service or the liturgy of the faithful. And what that means is that if you weren't receiving the Lord's Supper, if you were a catechumen, if you were still in, uh, in instruction toward receiving the sacrament of the altar, you would be there for the service of the Word. And then in church history, there would be someone's job. Uh, after the service of the Word, they would yell something along the lines of, The doors! The doors! Holy things for holy people! And what that meant is if you were a catechumen and not receiving the Lord's Supper, you had to get out. Um, the Lord's Supper was a holy thing that was not even to be observed. They didn't even consider that it was good for anyone to observe the sacrament uh, who was not receiving it. And so those who stay, that was the liturgy of the faithful, and those were those um, who were going to stay and receive the Lord's Supper. Um, that, that lasted for a long time. Um, still probably exists, especially, I'm guessing, in Eastern Christendom, especially where they still have Greek liturgies, that's probably, or, you know, maybe Russian, 
I'm guessing it maybe still is a thing over there, but in the West, that's just not a thing anymore. Um, so those are, that's our distinction. Yes, Mr. Hahn. I thought I read somewhere where the janitor is a doorkeeper. I totally could be. I don't know for sure either, but it sounds nice. <laughs> Could be true, all right? So these are, now, um, I would be remiss. Uh, my, one, of my, one of the first guys I learned anything about the organ from uh, was a guy at the Fort Wayne Seminary by the name of Cantor Resch. And he, and he wanted us to know not only that there were two high points of the service, but that there were also two musical high points of the service that weren't quite as important as these, but are, uh, as far as the music of the liturgy, the most important parts of the service of the Word and the sacraments. They want to take a shot at the musical high point of the service of the Word. Mr. Mueller. The musical high point of the service of the Word is the Gloria in excelsis. All right, so glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, good will toward men, and then and then the hymn that follows. That's the musical high point of the service of the word. Anyone got a the high, musical high point the service of the sacrament? The Sanctus. Holy, 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 you know, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, and as musical high points, those are uh, probably uh, the parts of the liturgy that the organist is going to use the the boldest registration, perhaps the Zimbelstern at times, especially if it's like Christmas or Easter. Um, and that's, yeah, musical high point, right? Uh, but that, what that means is, so that this is a little oversimplified, that means there is something of a shape to the liturgy that's not just two parts, right? Um, it's like any good journey. It's got, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's not like driving through central Illinois, right? Um, if the liturgy were like driving through central Illinois, um, uh, th this class could be done in 10 minutes. Straight, flat, nothing to see. Unless you like, unless you're really good at analyzing corn. And the occasional soy milk, right? I can make fun of that part of Illinois where I grew up. All right, so, right, so we come up, we have the Gloria, then up to the Gospel reading, and over to the song to finally the consecration and now we go right so it is uh, you have a couple mountains a couple mountains in there with high points all right so that kind of gives us a framework an overall structural framework uh, for which we can be with which we can begin to think about um, uh, the rest of the service uh, but let's go ahead and start now with the service of the word um, which uh, in in all of our settings so what is what is really so after the absolution what's the what is the next part of the service? What's the next thing? Not quite. We've got one before, but you're close. That's the next ordinary. It's the first ordinary. We have the intro it. All right, does anyone know the function of the intro it? Well, okay, it kind of sounds like introduction. It also kind of sounds like the word enter. So the, the, the reason you had an intro it, remember, there used to not be confession and absolution. So we walk into the church during the opening hymn. That way we're at the front and can do a confession and absolution. Uh, but if you don't have confession and absolution and not an opening hymn, well, you gotta, you gotta get in somehow. And so the intro it was a few psalm verses specifically for the purpose of getting in the church. The pastor needs to get in the church somehow. Uh, here's a couple psalm verses that he can sing 
um, while he gets into the church. Now, historically, what's interesting about the intro is because they're the first words of the service, um, except for pre-Lent, which, um, which, we don't, which we don't do here because we're on the three-year lectionary, uh, the first word of the intro, it, because it's the first word of the service, ended up, in many cases, being the name by which the Sunday was commonly known. So if we, just, if we start uh, at, the, um, at the beginning of the church year, so the church year begins with which season? Advent, right? So it's uh, so we're we're uh, kind of in the middle of the church here right now. So the first words of the intro it for ad that one in Latin are ad te lavavi uh, unto you, O Lord, have I lifted up unto you have I lifted up my soul. I mean that's to you I lift up. All right, um, and that's just the first three words of the intro it in Latin. Um, but as it comes to be known, if you're in the one year lectionary. Uh, and you're at a church who observes all, uh, all these Sundays. Um, if you want to, if you're looking, so if I'm looking up a Luther sermon and want to know what Luther preached on the first Sunday of Advent, uh, depending on who put the collection together, uh, looking for Advent 1 isn't going to do me much good because they don't have a heading in there called Advent 1, but they do have a heading in there called Ad Te Lavabi. Uh, so the introits are where we end up getting the names for our for our Sundays, if we're for the one-year lectionary, if not, we just number, uh, we just use numbers of the Sunday and the season. Uh, the church, the church we went to in Fort Wayne, uh, used used the Latin names, so I got pretty familiar with them after a while. Uh, and then, and then they do that. The one-year lectionary does start numbering once you get into the Trinity season where that we're in right now. So today is Trinity two. Um, but all the way, pretty much from Advent 1 all the way through Ascension, there's fun Latin names for almost all the Sundays. It's, it's kind of nice. All right, so we have the intro. Um, and the intro is usually key to the theme of the day. So remember, what's, what do you think is the driving force for the theme of the proper? Remember, the propers being the, propers being the parts of the liturgy that change week to week. What is the driving force that kind of dictates the theme of the Proverbs? Maybe I'm not asking that well. The readings, specifically which one? The Gospel reading, right? So everything is, is oriented based on the Gospel reading. All right, so um, a couple weeks ago, and that's even true in the three-year lectionary, everything uh, gets its orientation from the Gospel reading. So last week in the three-year, I remember this uh, better than today for some reason, uh, I had more time to sink in. So Jesus said in the gospel reading last week, uh, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So the intro it was from a psalm, and it talked about uh, how God was not pleased with the sacrifices uh, because they weren't done in faith, but rather what he desired was faith and mercy. All right? So we had, so we had, um, so we had an intro, a key to the gospel about God's, God's priority of mercy over sacrifice. All right, so it's that way every week. So, so you can usually, through the readings, except for the epistle in the three-year, uh, outside of that, you can usually find some sort of link from everything to the gospel, uh, including the intro. And, uh, and so, that's, so that's, that's how that, that tends to function. Uh, and as, you, and as you see every week, we, we actually do use the intro to enter. We enter the chancel during the intro. Uh, 
We do confession and absolution by the baptismal font. During the intro, we walk in. Um, the acolytes go in first. And, and, and if, you, if you're paying attention now, you probably have to be like staring at your bulletin so you know the words of the intro. That's fine. Um, but what sort of things happen during the intro? So the pastors, we walk in. Where do we go? Where do we go right when we walk in? We go to the altar, and then what do we do when we get to the altar? Kneel. We stop and we kneel. We, uh, the fancy word there is genuflect, to go down very quickly and back up on one knee. Uh, why, what's, the, what's going on with genuflecting? Especially since two of, two-thirds of our pastors complain about joint issues and knees hurting. Why do they... <laughs> Right? Um, I'm not going to say which two. But not the ones in their 20s. Um, all right, so if Pastor Schumacher's knee hurts, why does he still think it's worth it to genuflect? What's it demonstrating? Right. Right, so, so this is the place where God comes with, to meet with us, right? With his flesh and blood. And that makes this place holy, right? This altar is where Christ comes to us, um, specifically very fleshly with his body and blood for our forgiveness, our life, our salvation. Um, and what's the, and what, is the, um, what is the posture of all the people in the Bible whenever they, when they see God? Well, heck, what's the posture of the people in the Bible when they see created angels? When they see created angels, they fall down in worship, right? Um, so although we don't see it with our eyes, we do know that we're coming into the presence of God. Um, and so we offer him, we render unto him that worship, right? Um, that posture of humility, right? Kneeling is a posture of humility. You're more vulnerable when you're kneeling, right? So to put yourself, right, it's to throw yourself at someone's mercy to kneel in front of them, right? So we're throwing ourselves at the mercy of God, trusting that because he is merciful, he's not, uh, he's not going to... Um, uh, he's not going to uh, destroy us for daring to come into his presence, but rather he actually delights that we come to receive his, his grace and gifts. Yeah, Mr. Janetsky. Do we? Uh, huh. I... That's a local custom? Um, yeah, that's a local custom. So the Catholics, uh, so Catholics, they typically, so if you went to St. Raphael, they have what's called a tabernacle, and they, and there's always the bot, and there's, not always, sometimes in that tabernacle is leftovers from the sacrament, it's called reliquiae, uh, and sometimes they, they, they have special services to sit around and pray to that, pray to the, pray to the box with the, with the body and blood of Jesus in it. Uh, so for Catholics, what determines whether or not they genuflect is whether the candle next to that box is lit, because the candle tells you whether or not the body and blood of Jesus is in the box. So if the candle's lit, then you genuflect because the body and blood of Jesus is there. If the candle's not lit, then you don't genuflect because the body and blood of Jesus isn't in there. Um, as far as uh, us here, I don't, I don't know. So I genuflect at the parts of the liturgy where, uh, where it's been indicated by history of church tradition that that the pastor genuflects at this point. Uh, I don't think the candles have a lot of have a, have a lot of role in that. 
I do know that for our acolytes, when the candles are lit, the acolytes kneel. When they put them out, then the acolytes don't kneel. That's something we developed here. It's fine. It's good. Uh, so, so the candles aren't themselves the presence of Christ. They're a symbol. But, this, but the candles do symbolize the presence of Christ. So since they are a symbol of the presence of Christ, then I think it does make sense uh, that the acolytes genuflect when the candles are lit and don't genuflect when they're not lit, but that's okay. Um, yeah, Rich? Yeah. Yeah, right. So, and again, there's, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's going to be more rigorously maintained in Catholicism. Uh, we Lutherans leave that up to freedom. So depending on the church I'm in, so if I'm, if I'm at a church where I think people will think I'm weird and strange for genuflecting on my way into the pew, I don't do it. I don't want to cause a scene. If I'm at a church where it seems pretty commonplace for people to do that, I absolutely genuflect when I enter the pew. Um, when I cross center in the church, I usually bow toward the altar. I don't genuflect every time I cross center. Uh, uh, especially so, so the only, the only way that changes a little bit is if I'm at a church where they don't consume the entire sacrament before the end of the service. So if they leave the leftovers to be consumed after the service, uh, if the body and blood of Christ center on the altar, then I genuflect more frequently on my way past the middle. It's all personal habit, right? I'm not prescribing this on, on anyone. That's, that's my own personal habit piety. Uh, but the point being, right, is that the, the, the entire point of this uh, is that we understand that this is the place where God comes to us with his gracious presence. Um, and, and we want to show him the right reverence and worship that he's owed. Um, and so that's, that, that's what motivates us to do this. Yeah, Keith. Um, with candles. Yeah. The eternal candle. Oh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it, it means common throughout the church. It's, yeah, it... It was a trend about 60 years, maybe 70 years ago now. So that candle started out, so that's the sort of candle that a Roman Catholic would have sitting next to the tabernacle that they would light based on whether or not there's body or blood of Jesus in the tabernacle. At some point it became a, a trend to put them in Lutheran churches. I don't know. And, and people come up and no one really knows what it means. It's like someone saw it once, thought it was pretty. And everyone started doing this, and everyone's like, okay, what's it mean? And everyone's like, I don't know. So, like, there's explanations, right? It's the eternal candle. It symbolizes the eternal presence of God. And that's fine with me, right? Uh, I'm not a... Right, and I'm not opposed to that, but it's like... Uh, but, but, but that's like... It seems like that explanation was kind of made up after we all put these in our churches, and we don't really know what the heck's going on. Uh, but I like it. Since we have one, we've got to have some reason for it. Otherwise, yeah, I know. You do run into a Lutheran church, usually old ones. New ones almost always have it. You do run into like, these churches that are like uh, sometimes you know built in the mid 1800s or something that they never got one. Uh, but those are pretty few and far between. Sometimes they're red, sometimes they're white. Some churches have a real candle in them. Some have a switch they turn on. But what, the ones I really like. Sorry, we're not talking about the intro. But, um, the ones I really like are the churches that have it electronically, and I'm not opposed to electronically, but. They have the, the first usher that gets into church. His job is to go click it on for church. And then the last usher out the door, his job is to turn it off. And so this is an eternal candle symbolizing the eternal presence of Christ, except 
except we turn it off for most of the week. Um, so I'm glad we have a we have a seven day candle that once it's burned out immediately gets replaced. So I mean, except for the 20 seconds it takes to replace it, it's always we do always have the candle in there burning in our sanctuary, which is good if it's actually supposed to symbolize the eternal uh, God, you know, the eternity of God. Um, as long as we understand that that's the point of the candle, I'm, I'm all for it. Anything else about the eternal flame? All right. Anything else about genuflecting? All right. Cool. All right. So during the intro, it, so we walk in, sing the psalm verses. The intro, it always includes the Gloria Patri. So the glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. And then we uh, repeat the antiphon of the intro. So that's the verse at the beginning and the end of the intro. It usually a thematic verse, kind of the key verse, the one that you're supposed to remember. That's why it's repeated. Um, and that, that's the end of the intro. It. Um, so the Gloria Patri um, is sung year-round as part of the intro, it, except theoretically for uh, the last week, um, the last week of Lent and Holy Week. So from Lent five. Uh, until Good Friday, the Gloria Patri um, theoretically drops out. It doesn't always happen in execution, but it's theoretically supposed to. Right, because that's Passion Tide, uh, the, the, uh, the level of penitence is increasing, and so uh, these words, are, uh, we recognize that words of praise are not our right, but rather are a gift, and so, uh, like with, so we fast from them for a time, um, to, in order to, to appreciate them the more when they come back on Easter. All right, so immediately following the intro, it, then the next part of the service is the Kyrie. And this is another reason why I want to use setting three to go through this. So you'll notice that the Kyrie is pretty different in form across uh, the settings of the divine service, right? Um, so in setting three, it is simply, Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us. That's, that's a threefold Kyrie, you can do sixfold Kyrie's or ninefold Kyrie's. Um, there are churches who on festivals will do what's called a ninefold Kyrie. So, Lord have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Christ, and, and you get the picture, you know, so it's ninefold. Um, how is that different than what's going on in setting one or setting two? What's the difference? What? What was that, Tom? Right, so the pastor has something like, in peace let us pray to the Lord, that the congregation comes in with Lord have mercy. Um, and the pastor has this number of petitions, and the congregation responds to all of them with Lord have mercy, all right? So that's kind of a new innovation. Um, historically, it was just the Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. So in setting one and two, we never get a Christ have mercy. It's Lord have mercy throughout. Um, so it does lose its, and it's, and since it is just a number of petitions, well, um, yeah, so the, and it's fourfold, you have four Lord have mercies. Um, and so it's, it is a different shape, it's a different, um, it does just have a different 
effect than than the uh, than the than the Kyrie and setting free. Um, so let's so let's first talk about just Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy upon us, right? Um, so uh, why do we? So we've just had our sins forgiven. We just uh, we've just said had the intro at the Gloria Patri, um, and now we're crying out for mercy. What's this? What's the what's the Kyrie doing here? Why are we crying out for mercy again? Already. Well, remember when the Kyrie was put here, they didn't have confession and absolution right before it. So you have the intro. The pastor gets into the uh, gets into the chancel, and immediately you start crying out for mercy. Right. So you're walking into the presence of God, um, and in order to do that, you need His mercy. Right. So that's kind of historically how it lands there. Uh, and even in our sets, uh, setting, I think it's, it's good to retain it. Luther liked it. Um, uh, because we still, right, even as forgiven sinners, we still live in the mercy of God, right? Uh, his mercy is ongoing, right? We have his mercy in the forgiveness of sins, uh, but it's his mercy that endures forever. Uh, it's his mercy that sustains us um, in that forgiveness, and it's his mercy that allows even us uh, to enter into his presence. Uh, and, and, and let's think about some Bible passages. Uh, what are some examples of people crying out for mercy? Where do we find this? Yeah. In Exodus, where? Okay, in the wilderness they cry out for mercy. Okay, that's good. Right, so he says, Lord, son of David, have the very words, have mercy on me. Anywhere else? So we have blind Bartimaeus, the wilderness wanderers. How about the Pharisee and the tax collector? Which of them cries out for mercy? The tax collector, right? The Pharisee prays and says, oh, thank goodness, dear Lord, that I'm not like him. Um, and, the, and the tax collector cries out. He doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me the sinner, right? Uh, you have the 10 lepers in Luke 17, right? Uh, Jesus, master, have mercy on us, right? So we have all these things. Um, and when we, what do we see? What do we see happens when people cry out to Jesus for mercy? They receive it, right? Uh, so we're not crying out for mercy in fear or... Um, we don't cry out in mercy as those who are unsure. We cry out for mercy knowing that Christ loves to have mercy, right? So we cry out for mercy with confidence, knowing that this is the very thing that Christ wants to do for us. He wants to give us mercy. When, uh, when the uh, tax collector cries out, have mercy on me, the sinner, Jesus says what? This one went to his house having been justified rather than the Pharisee. Right, so we have this, um, so we have this in, in various places, right, in the scriptures. Lord, have mercy on me. Uh, and the implication of having mercy means that there's something that we've done that needs mercy, right? So it does, it does have the implication that we're sinners, right? Because uh, mercy is not receiving what we deserve, which is, which is punishment. So we pray that God would actually grant us that mercy, which he does, right? Um, and we know that he grants us that mercy, and, and that's actually going to 
um, give shape to the whole divine service following the Kyrie, right? That this is a place in which God comes to dispense mercy, right? We have it uh, in the Gloria, right? That God has, right? The, 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 the service, if you think of it kind of narratively, um, we cry out for mercy, and the rest of the service is going to be demonstrating how God does that, starting with the Gloria Nixelsis all the way through the benediction. Anything about the Kyrie? Oh, so, so the difference then in setting one and two then, um, so that, that is a real form of prayer. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace from above, let us pray to the Lord. Um, but it, it, until, the, until the 70s, it didn't have a place here at the beginning of the service. Where would you find something like that before the 70s? Where would you find petitions like that? The prayer of the church, right? That's a, that's a form of the prayer of the church. Um, and I really think that's the better place for it. Um, I think what I, what I really appreciate about the threefold Kyrie that we have in setting three is it's got an undeniably Trinitarian shape and characteristic to it um, that's just not as evident in, um, in, in settings one and two. It's not to say well, that this there is bad. I just don't think it's as quite as clear or robust, right? That there are three. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us, right? There's a Trinitarian shape to that, right? Um, uh, because, right, what do we confess about the Father and the Holy Spirit? Well, that they're Lord, right? The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, right? Um, so this idea that we're, that we're crying out to the whole three persons of the Trinity for mercy, I think is a, is a, um, is a, is a, uh, is clear and it's, and that's a, that, that makes it, I think that makes it a better, better usage than, uh, than the, than shifting the prayer of the church forward in the service. That being said, there are some merits to, to the way we do it in setting one and two, right? Um, praying to the Lord in peace, um, the peace from above and for our salvation. What's especially, what is especially good about the one in the, the Kyrie in settings one and two um, is the prayer for this holy house and for all who offer here their worship and praise. Um, that, having that at the front end of the service, I think that petition specifically makes a lot of sense where it's at, right? That we pray for those who have come, that have come to offer their worship and praise to God, that we actually pray for them and for that at the beginning of the service. That makes a lot of sense there. Um, and, it's, and it's good, but it's not enough to convince me that it's better, but that's okay. That's why it's nice that we cycle through the services. Any other questions, comments, before we wrap it up for today? All right, if not, then I'll, then I'll see you in church. God bless your week.